Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, uh, <laughs> you just, when you think it's like done, it just keeps going. You know, it's, uh, it just keeps on going. It's like, when is he ever going to get through the roof? Right? All right. <laughs> I uh, just, uh, for real quick, I just have to say, um, we sing songs like, I will glory in my Redeemer. I just want us to ask that question. Do, we, do you glory in your Redeemer, right? Like day in, day out, do you glory in your Redeemer, right? Uh, the psalm before that, on the altar of our, of our praise, let there be no higher name. You know, all of our lives is, we're praising something. Uh, and uh, on the altar of our praise, is there no other hi- no higher name than Jesus, Son of God? Or is there something else that creeps on there often that is that receives your highest praise? Um, just some thoughts as we jump in. So we're going to continue today in our series called Gospel and Kingdom. And uh, we're going to uh, push on through... Uh, this thought of the kingdom of God and how it relates to the gospel and how it ties together uh, the book that God has given us to read and to know and He has written to reveal Himself to us. Um, and uh, as we continue through this, I, I pray that, um, that you put diligent study uh, into God's Word uh, as I really believe that giving yourself and your walk and your journey a big overview of God's Word and the ability to tie things together and see the big picture is really going to help you piece together parts of this puzzle. Um, there's no reason for us to live this life not knowing God's big picture. Uh, it helps us... Uh, when we encounter different texts, we kind of see where it fits into the larger picture. Um, and so I would just encourage you to, I mean, every ounce of God's Word is valuable. Um, but I would encourage you from a logical standpoint, knowing the big picture uh, is really going to help you be able to understand the bits and pieces of Scripture as you continue in your journey uh, towards heaven and in likeness of Jesus Christ. So, I just want to encourage you guys to continue doing that. Take good notes today. Um, today, it's not going to be 30 minutes of a lecture and then, you know, 45 minutes of a sermon. Uh, that's going to be all God's Word, and I pray that it um, will serve your hearts well. Uh, as an, an issue of kind of housekeeping, I want to encourage you, you all should have received a couple charts here on uh, Wednesday and on Tuesday night. Um, I would encourage you to take a good look at this uh, and to know it well. Um, This is not gospel, it just simply recounts, if you will, some kind of the big picture. And so here's, here's kind of where we sit at in this series. It's hard, there's kind of two pieces. It it's hard to understand the details and the certain instances of the kingdom in the Word of God if you don't first know the big picture. Or you're saying, well, we're just going to spend eight to however many weeks 
uh, talking about the big picture. Um, so it's kind of like it'll all fit together much better once we get to the end, but you will benefit much greater through the process if you already start to develop and understand some of the bigger picture from the very beginning. Um, so that is part of what this really just in a couple charts kind of paints for you a very broad stroke, the big picture. So I would encourage if you if you don't do this uh, and, and take a look at this, it, it might be a big hindrance to you as we work through the text. So basically what I've tried to do, what we've tried to do in this is give you a big sweeping view of the Word of God um, without telling you to read all 1,400 pages, which you should do anyways, uh, but uh, uh, to kind of jump start that for you. So with that said, let's read uh, Genesis chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 1. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, this will be our primary text for today. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, once you all are there, we'll proceed. The author says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise, I'm sorry, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, 
I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desires shall be your, for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that your word um, would do what your word is meant to do, and that is to pierce our hearts, to conform us into your likeness. Uh, Father, that ultimately we would be redeemed and set free by your word. It is nothing else that brings about sanctification, or nothing else that comes with the promise and guarantee of sanctification, but, but your word so, Father, I pray that, um, that your word would be clear to us this morning, that we would understand it. You, Father, you've meant it to be clear and understandable and knowable for us. And so, Father, I pray that uh, we would know your word this morning more clearly. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so here in the beginning of Genesis 3, it begins with a snake questioning the truthfulness of God's word. And we've all heard this story, and for some of this, this might be some repetition for you, but I hope this is presented in a fresh way that will help you understand God and know Him more clearly today. So it begins with a snake questioning the truthfulness of God's Word. Um, if you look at Revelation 12, 9, 20, 12, chapter 12, verse 9, chapter 20, verse 2, you can look at those letters. It identifies the snake as Satan. Uh, we know that this snake is not eternal. And that he must have been created perfect, yet rebelled. Uh, I, and it's interesting, if you're reading through Vaughn's book, uh, Vaughn Roberts' book, as we're reading, as we're working through this kingdom thing, he says this, it does not matter whether or not we understand where evil com- comes from, but it's important that we know of its existence. Uh, and I would say, I mean, for the most part, I agree with that statement, that what's most important if not exclusively important, is that we know of evil's existence. We can debate for years where it came from. What's important is that we know it's there. Satan tries to convince us that it's not there. But evil is there, and it's important that we know it. So if we look at this event in the garden, here's a question. Are we to understand, how are we to understand this event? Are, real, are we to understand it as real? Uh, a myth? Um, it's interesting, uh, there's a new t- an Old Testament scholar that I, that I really like, uh, agree with most of what he, he, 
he interprets and under, how he understands Scripture. But when he gets to this part of the text, uh, he doesn't believe that uh, Adam and Eve are real people, that they're more of a, uh, a symbol or an analogy. And um, I think that gets problematic. His, his name, the scholar is Trimper Longman III, but uh, he's a great OT scholar. Um, but uh, he, he would say this is, this is more of a, uh, like a, an analogy, if you will. It's a symbolic. Um, but it's interesting because the rest of the Bible, I think, interprets this event to be uh, real. Romans 5, verse 12 through 19. Again, you can look at that later. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 through 22. And I believe that just as Jesus was a real human being, whose death achieved for us real salvation, so Adam was a real human being whose sin resulted in a real fall. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. If you want to turn there with me real quick, let's read 1 Corinthians 15 through 21. I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 21. Paul says, Paul says to us, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I think Paul understands Adam to be real. So what about this idea of a talking snake? Uh, so we have a talking snake. Um, should we take this as literal? Um, you know, Vaughn mentions that uh, he thinks Genesis 3 describes an actual event but uses some symbolism as it does so. And, and I, think, I, I think he's probably right. I think uh, that uh, there can be some symbolism used in the text. I don't think that that's, uh, that's a crazy idea. So, but the fact is if someone came, something came, and the Bible talks about it as being Satan. And these two human beings were tempted to do something very bad, and they succumb to it. So here's the deal. like We can get lost again in the details that we miss the point of the text. So I want to encourage us to do that, the f- uh, to not do that. Uh, so the first thought on your guys' outline here is the idea of the demand of the covenant. The demand of the covenant. Now, there's argument as to whether or not there is a creation covenant. Uh, scholars debate that all the time. Is there this, is there a creation covenant? I'm not going to set out to prove this morning, we don't have time, that there is a creation covenant, but I think that there is. I think there's clearly a creation covenant. It's where God establishes the relationship with his people. Here's the parameters. Here's the what I give. Here's what you give me. Uh, and this is our agreement. So with that said, what do we see um, if you're taking notes, there is a real and vital element of condition in the covenant relationships in the garden. There's some elements here. First of all is the prohibition of the tree. This is, a, this is a clear element that God has prohibited them. There's a prohibition of the tree. Eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was prohibited. This was ultimately, and we're going to talk more about this later, and we'll define it more later, this is ultimately a prohibition of moral legislative autonomy. You're going, huh? I thought that was only in U.S. government. 
ultimately is a prohibition, I believe, of moral legislative autonomy. Man was given the opportunity here 24-7 to exercise his willful submission to the moral legislation of God. So the tree represented an opportunity for him to exercise autonomy from God. Instead of willfully submitting to God's moral legislation. So, first, the prohibition of the tree. We also see that Adam will be a son of God. He is the son of God. That God will care for him. That God will commune with him. And the garden is the place where God will reside and man will reside there with him. So we see God's people. This is Adam and Eve in God's place. This is the garden. Underneath God's rule, the tree represents an opportunity for man to exercise Autonomy from God. So God has, uh, sorry, so Adam will be, so it's prohibition of the tree, Adam will be the son of God. Thirdly, Adam is to be the servant king over the rest of creation. This is a command given to Adam to do. It's not an option for him, it's not an opportunity. So he's to exercise servant kingship over creation, underneath God's authority. Man is then to rule over the rest of creation. God, man, rest of creation. God is to be authority over man. Man, while in authority over woman, is to exercise authority over the rest of creation. We'll dig into that statement a little further later. So God had given them the parameters of their freedom Within the covenant, he set forth the boundary of this covenant. It seems pretty open, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of freedom there. Just a couple things. You're to do these things, and, and this is what will be done for you. I don't know if I've used this analogy here before, but uh, a lot of times we think of freedom. We think of we are most free when we can do whatever the heck we want to do. I want you to think of this in terms of a train. We think of a train. When is a train most free? Is a train most free when he's able to run and glide quickly and safely on the track? Or when he can go wherever he wants to go? I mean, think about a train, how it's made. Is it great freedom when that train leaves that track? Or is it great destruction when that train leaves that track? It's great destruction when the train leaves that track both for everyone inside the train and everything around the train. It is great destruction. So here we see God is setting forth these parameters of which there is great freedom for man to exercise. And, and we see this theme. I mean, this is very common in our day as well, very applicable for us. We are most free when we are living with inside the parameters that God has given for us and the covenant that He has made with us. So if man will do this, so here, here we go. If man will do these things, they will live in the place of God forever under his care and provision as the people of God. So exercise dominion, not eat of the tree. Submit to God and, and not seek moral autonomy, but to live underneath God. If they do this, they'll live under the care and provision as the people of God forever. Let me make a quick comment about this before we move to the next thought. You see, ultimately, I think, from the very beginning, we'll break up these over multiple different covenants. 
But what we see from the very beginning in the covenant of creation, we see what we can more broadly see throughout Scripture, the covenant of grace. So we see here, the covenant of grace begins from the very beginning, and we will define this more as we go over the next few weeks, but I believe, just as a thought here, that the covenant of grace and the kingdom of God is essentially the same thing. The covenant of grace and the kingdom of God. So let's think about this. The covenant of grace, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God establishing His kingdom, reestablishing His kingdom among man. And we see this theme. This is, going, this is God's building and building and building and building. And, and I'm not saying that they're exactly synonymous, but what we see is the exercise of God's grace when He could have kept His kingdom from us. So he establishes his kingdom and by that exercising grace upon his people. So God choosing to establish his kingdom, we see, is an exercise of grace among us. So first of all, we need to see the demand of the covenant. The second thing that we need to see here is we need to recognize your natural, our natural tendency to rule separate of God. To rule separate of God. So here in the garden, God ruled over His people by His Word. Right? So His Word was to do this, to not do this, and He rules over His people. And that's right where Satan attacked. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, right, right there from the very beginning, Did God's word actually mean this? Did God actually say this? You shall not eat of the tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was also with her, and he ate. So right off the bat, guys, the wrong that's done, the sin that's done in the garden, is not specifically the act of eating of the fruit. The wrong here is the disobedience to God's Word. So it's the disobedience to what God had clearly commanded. The action of actually eating of the fruit is symbolic, I think, of the disobedience to God's Word, or is, is how the disobedience of God's Word is worked out. Ultimately, not submitting to God's rule. So, question. What's so bad about knowing the difference about good and evil? What's so bad? So if they eat of the tree, they're going to know the difference between good and evil. What's so bad about that? I mean, don't we want to know about the difference between good and evil? Like, as you're living your day in, day life out, don't you want to know what is good, what is evil? Uh, I believe that the knowledge of good and evil here refers to more than just simply knowing right and wrong. Uh, There's a great article written by a guy named W.M. Clark uh, in the Journal of Biblical Literature. And he says this, the knowledge of good and evil has to do with the exercise of absolute moral autonomy. 
That is to say, knowing good and evil means choosing or determining for oneself what is right and wrong independently of God. Let me read that one more time. Knowledge of good and evil has to do with the exercise of absolute moral autonomy. That is to say, knowing good and evil means choosing or determining for oneself what is right and wrong independently of God. It means to decide what is right and wrong. So Adam and Eve, when tempted by Satan, the response should have been, we trust God, we have a loyal love for God, we will be obedient to God. This is what He's commanded us to do. A tree was a test. Would Adam and Eve trust God, loyally love Him, and be obedient to Him, worshiping the true God, or would they trust in their own ability to discern what is right and good? Ultimately, in that moment, they choose to worship their own ability and opportunity to become like God, to exercise moral, legislative, separate legislation is separate from God. Some argue that the tree represents an idol. And I, think, I think it can represent an idol, but I think the point here, if we drive this, I think, to where it's going, is that the tree was simply the bridge between solely trusting in God, loving God, and obedience to God. The bridge between that and being like God, so that they could place their trust, love, and obedience in themselves. So the act of eating and knowing from the tree was an act to, we want to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. So the sin was a choice to worship themselves instead of the one true God. I think what we have from, from the very beginning is self-idol worship. We have Adam and Eve choosing, we want to do this independently of God. We don't want to be underneath His rule. We want to do this ourselves. It's the same for the rest of human history. Physical idols will be erected, but internally man is worshiping his autonomy. I think this is clear outside of the church today, but... Sometimes I think we get confused in all this inside of the church. Because we think because we sing songs that God is on His rightful place and, and we are worshiping Him and because we think that every once in a while we seek God's advice and God's moral legislation that that makes us grand and then we don't dig deep enough or we don't spend enough time reflecting on our hearts to realize that there are other things on our idol receiving our highest praise. I think ultimately that's, a lot of that's going to come down to self-worship, uh, idol worship, that is, ourselves. So Adam and Eve were saying that they want to be rulers in the world. They didn't want God to rule over them. They wanted to rule themselves. They were usurping God's authority. They did not want to be God's people any longer. My question for us, where are we choosing to exercise this kind of autonomy? We pride ourselves, right? And I can make this decision myself. 
I've got this figured out. I think some of this thought creeps into our just absolute persistence to exalt free will above and beyond God's sovereignty. It's a place where we want to say, we are autonomous from God, and I can make this decision myself. I believe the Bible does teach free will, teaches God's sovereignty as well. But we have such an exaltation of man's moral autonomy that we just very in the name of theology, in the name of knowing God, we quote a couple verses, then we take God and set him over here and say, it's about me and my choice. So where does this creep in? Where in our lives are we exercising autonomy from God? God's, so Adam's decision to be self-legislating, let's think about this, made him like God in one sense. Made him like God in the sense of knowing this good and evil. But where it made him, where he was still not like God, was the ability to foresee the consequences of choices long term, or to even always be certain of the issues that are right before him. Does that make sense? So he now has this autonomy to make the decision between right and wrong apart from God. But the issue is, is unlike God, God is omnipresent, He's all-powerful, He's all-knowing. So He, when making that decision or giving His legislation, He knows every outcome of, every possible outcome of that. Matter of fact, He knows what the outcome will be. And then on top of that, God is perfectly assessing the situation. And saying, this will be the outcome of that decision. Not just possibly, but for sure, because I can see it, because I know it. You and I don't have that ability. So when we make decisions, we don't even know if we're assessing it to perfection, which is probably impossible for us to do anyways. To know perfectly the situation before us. And we certainly don't know what the outcome will be. So for us, in this exercising autonomous moral legislation, trying to be like God, we'll never be like us. We can't do that. So what happens then is we end up making these decisions and failing miserably often. Because we were not meant to legislate moral morality and discerning what is good and wrong by ourselves. That was meant to be God's. Think of a child getting around for the first time. Uh, yeah, think of Hayden sitting on the couch. Um, Hayden, like, will just throw himself around, right? You've, have you ever held, like, a one-year-old? And they're just kind of just, like, throw themselves around. You're like, dude, if I let go of you, you're going to go boom, boom, right? And it's going to hurt really bad. But they have no clue. They don't know at this point the consequence of their decision. And we think, because we're adults, we know the consequence of all of our decisions. When in reality, we don't even know if we're understanding the circumstance rightly. Let alone understanding all the consequences of that, good and bad. 
of that decision. Now, we learn as we go, and the idea is to grow in wisdom and knowledge of God so that we can begin to discern things rightly and, and correctly, but, but to know them to the extent that God would is impossible for us. That's why submission to God is so key, and the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives is so key. Both and. So, now man has decided that instead of living, le- I'm sorry, instead of leaving the moral legislation up to God, he's going to be capable of doing that himself. This is why we're dependent upon God's word and the work of the Holy Spirit, because we cannot do this ourselves. But that's the great thing. God has sent the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us, and he has made the word clear and understandable, and we can know it, not with perfection, but we can know it with confidence. It takes time and study and diligent work, but we can know it, not to perfection, but with confidence. So we see the demand, then we see um, the demand of the covenant, and we recognize our tendency to, to rule separate of God, and then thirdly, we need to understand the consequences of our sin. Now we just talked about not being able to understand them fully. So even as we talk about these, understand that we're not going to see the consequences of these fully, but we see what's revealed to us in Scripture. The first consequence of this sin and of our sin is that the relationship with our spouse will be difficult. The relationship with our spouse will be difficult. So, the relationship with our spouse is not difficult only because Adam and Eve chose to sin. The relationship with our spouse will be difficult because we choose to sin as well. Right? Okay, make sure we got that one clear. Genesis 3-7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here we have the perfect trust and intimacy between the two has disappeared. It's gone. They make coverings to hide their nakedness. There's a lot more to that. Don't have time. But they make coverings to hide their nakedness. The intimacy, the closeness, this this openness is now gone. Genesis 3.16. He says, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Uh, if you're a woman and had a child, you understand the pain and childbearing. Uh, and I don't want to say too much because we have one that could go into labor as I'm speaking of it. Uh, and uh, that might be glorious, but uh, uh, not something I want to recount. So, or experience, I don't think. Anyway, so. So pain and childbearing. Uh, the second thing he says is that the woman now desires her husband. Desires her husband. What does he mean? This may simply refer to sexual desire, uh, which is a qu- just kind of paused and caused a curious thought in my mind. Uh, on a practical note, I, this is just terrible. This is not good interpretation of scripture, but. I just have to ask, 
Do you think that the curse, men, has been that your wife just has this incredible sexual desire for you? Just a point of practicality. Men, if you've been blessed with that curse, amen. That's a good curse. And women, right? Right? I mean, what do you have to say about that? You know? <laughs> Brian might. All right. <laughs> okay. Moving on. <laughs> so, men, encourage your ladies to get to know Tiff. There you go. She's going to kill me if she hears this on the recording. <laughs> moving on, moving on, moving on, moving on. But it may. So it could just simply refer to sexual desire. I literally had that in my notes and then took it all back out. And then I'm like, I just can't resist. So. Do what? What? Full-size bed. Yeah, full-size bed. <laughs> Full-size bed, that's the key. Separation is not good, okay. We're getting rid of our king, okay? We're getting rid of our king-size bed. We're going to a twin. How about that? Have you ever tried sleeping in a twin next to someone? Anybody? How about do that with a two-year-old? That, is, that is just doesn't work. You think I'm going to get more sleep because I'm going to just go sleep with him so he'll shut up and stay in bed? It doesn't work that way. He's like, and on top of you, and dude, like, stay still. You're supposed to be asleep, not like flailing. So, anyways. <laughs> I lost my place in my notes. There we go. Let's get rid of this. Okay. <laughs> All right, so, back to the text. This may simply refer to sexual desire, but it may also suggest a longing to take control over him. Uh, we see in Genesis 4-7, it's used in that sense. This idea to take control over. Um, I think from the context, it's clear it's a desire to rule over him. Um, I don't even know that you need to go to Genesis 4-7 to understand it as a usurping of authority over the man. I think it's clear from this context. Uh, there has been, and part of that, I don't, there's been no explicit reference to a sexual desire thus far. We don't see that. What we see clearly displayed is system or orders of authority uh, between God and man, man and woman. I think that is where he's driving at here. So there's been this great reference, I think, to this authority. So I think that's where he's going. I think it's clear that her desire will be to take the lead from him. To take that charge. So God has designed our relationships. Let me give us kind of a side note here. God has designed, I believe, our relationships to reflect something from the Trinity here. Something in the Trinity. This idea of roles and relationships where there's equal dignity but yet distinct in character. I'm sorry, distinct in roles. Equal in dignity, equality, but distinct 
and roles. It's interesting if you look uh, and understand this again through, and, and, and to get to the Trinity, I think we have to drive to the New Testament. So we look through the lens of the Trinity, through the lens of the Gospel, and we see and God is painting, and, and all the time is about displaying on this earth pictures of Himself, examples, tangible displays of Himself. Both Jesus and His relationship to the church, and I think that's part in the marriage thing, but then also this idea of the Trinity, and, and our marriages give another tangible display for the idea of equality, but yet distinct in roles equal before the throne of God, yet carrying out a different task. Genesis 3.17, let's move on. It says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. So the man will no longer... You have to jump back to Genesis 3.16... He says, and he shall rule over you. The idea here is not this gentle, perfect ruling now. It's this idea of a painful ruling, an inappropriate ruling, a non-God-reflective ruling. So this idea of a loving, self-sacrificial way that was God's design is now gone. That his rule will not be that way. Instead, Adam, what he does is instead of ruling this way, he follows Eve's lead. So now, the loving, self-sacrificial leadership of Genesis 2 is now replaced by a harsh rule. Next thought. Our dominion over creation will be painful. Our dominion over creation will be painful, knowing the consequences of our sin. Genesis 3, 17 through 18 and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 18, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So working the land will now involve much sweat and hard labor. It will be difficult. Now the creation right, will be experienced as an enemy. Now the creation will be experienced as something that's against you, that's working against you. Another thought is our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with God is broken. So you kind of see like three relationships here, right? Our relationship with our spouse, our relationship with creation, and then our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is broken. Man turns away from God in rebellion, and God turns away in judgment. We rebel, God turns in judgment. The warm friendship is now destroyed. The warm friendship is gone. But look what happens. God still, though, comes to man. God still comes to man. Verse 9, chapter 3. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, do you think God sitting there going, Huh, I wonder where he goes. Marco! Yeah. Like, I mean, is that what God, does he have no clue? No, he knows. But he's going. He's pursuing man. 
In His grace, God continues to seek after sinful human beings, calling us back into fellowship with Him. By nature, though, we run away. Right? By nature, it is to run from God. Adam is afraid and ashamed, naked before God. The old innocence is gone. And God judges the guilty just as He promised. So God comes, but He also judges. Satan was wrong. God didn't say that you would die. Huh. No, God did. And God meant it. Just as He means everything else He says. God's warning of death was not just a threat. God banishes them from the garden. They continue to exist physically, but spiritually, right? Because they're now no longer in this innocent, perfect, joyful relationship with God. That is gone. That is dead. Their spiritual connection with God is gone. Living in communion in God's place as God's people under God's rule is gone. They're spiritually dead. And God stayed true to his promise. Now, obviously, they would eventually physically die as well because they can now no longer eat from the tree of life. Which ultimately, we even in that act see the grace of God. Because for us to live in that sinful state for all of eternity, could you imagine? But instead, facing death. So, see the consequences of our sin. Next, let's very quickly see the spread of sin and death. See the spread of sin and death. Ever since the fall, human beings have been experiencing spiritual and physical death because of the rebellion of our ancestors. Now, let's think about this for a second. You ever hear someone say, I've said this here before, some of you have heard it before, but people say, well, let's get back to the good old days, right? Well, we're already beyond the good old days. Ever since this point, it's been a succession of really bad days. So we don't want to get back to the good old days. We want to get forward to the good old days, right? Now, where Jesus is king, Satan is in hell, and we live by the face of the glory of God in our presence. So ever since, it's been a bad days. And we, too, are rebellious against God's rule. We, too, face the punishment of death and eternal separation from God. So Genesis 4 through 11 chart the spread of sin and death, God's judgment against it in this first period of human history. So it's very quickly, I would encourage you to write this down. Genesis 4, story of Cain and Abel. We have the murder of Abel. So what we see here once again is now that the vertical relationship with God has been broken, our horizontal relationships with each other begin to crumble. They begin to fall apart. Abel found favor with God, and in jealousy, Cain murders Abel. Genesis 5, we see mortality. The first genealogy in the Bible. We also see that even the offspring of man is made in the image of God. Genesis 5, 1-3. This is the book of generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and named them man... When they were created, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. But once again, his image is messed up. 
human beings also bear the marks of sin. We all do. And it's interesting, if you go back and read this, go back and read this, I'd encourage you to in Genesis 5. The refrain keeps repeating, and then he died. And then he died. And then he died. And death comes to all. So then in Genesis 6-9, through nine, we see the flood. So just a few generations have come and gone, but sin is very much alive. It is here. Genesis, 5, Genesis 6, 56 says, The Lord, I'm sorry, Genesis 6, 5, there we go. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in, in the earth, and that every intention and thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord God regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And the Lord regretted. What a statement. His heart was filled with pain. If you want to do a study on what he means by regretted, go for it. But God resolves here to act in judgment. Right? Verse 7, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land of man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So the resulting flood causes terrible destruction. But we see one of the first salvific acts of God in maintaining for himself a remnant of people as he will continue to do in saving Noah and his people. If you think about the flood, I think it's a reversal of creation. Essentially everything going back, starting over, so the division between earth and the waters, which God established on the first day of creation, is undone. There's a return to the chaos which existed before the world was made, as once again water now covers the earth. Chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, or Babel. God preserved one family through the flood. Sadly, so did sin and God's righteous response to it. Right? So here we come to the lowest point in the Bible so far. Genesis 11, verse 4. When they said, Then they said, listen to these words, Come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we, disper lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. A tower is a vivid symbol of our sinful desire to exalt ourselves and create our own kingdom independently of God. But God will not tolerate this, so He frustrates their efforts. He scatters them throughout the earth and gives them different languages. There's a lot going through those passages. I encourage you to go back and read all those chapters. But moving forward for today, what we see now is that the kingdom has now been perished. It's gone. The kingdom pattern, not the perfect kingdom, but the kingdom pattern, has now been perished. The perfect creation that God had established is now a distant dream. The pattern has been destroyed by sin. Humans are no longer God's people by nature. 
We have turned away from Him. We no longer live in His place. We have been banished from the garden. We reject His rule and live as if we rule the earth. Moral autonomy. But God continues to reign, but He reigns primarily in judgment. He continues to reign. As a result, we do not enjoy God's blessing, but instead face His curse. Despair, right? Anybody here feel, feel hopeless? Right? Like, when we miss this picture, we get into a whole heap of trouble. And God could have stopped the story, understand, right there. He could have stopped it at the tree. He didn't have to come walking through the garden looking for Adam and Eve. He could have stopped the story right there. And our Bible could consist of how good the earth used to be for just a generation. And then how we all get to suffer and go to hell. But the story doesn't stop there, does it? Like, the story doesn't stop there, does it? The gospel story continues, right? It does. The Bible could have stopped. Look at Genesis 3.15 with me real quick. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God, from the very beginning, promises that one day the offspring of the woman shall strike a deadly blow to the serpent. That someone will come, and that through this deadly strike, God will redeem the earth to himself. That he will once again establish his perfect kingdom. Look at Genesis 3.20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So they had fig leaves, right? Fig leaves? Because should celebrate Earth Day. They just all wear fig leaves. Whoa. <laughs> What's God do? I mean, where did this skin just appear in the air? What do you think happened? I think Adam and Eve experienced for the first time the killing of an animal. The shedding of blood. And then God uses that skin symbolically to cover them, both physically and symbolically the shedding of blood and the covering of man's guilt I think we have here the foreshadowing the death and the ultimate sacrifice and covering of man's sins in Jesus' blood so God wants to bring back to himself a people who willingly submit to him this is part of this is his kingdom plan this is what meant by the kingdom of God not the area where he rules because guys think about this God still rules everywhere but the sphere where his rule is gladly accepted is willfully chosen to submit. Looking back, we see that God's intention is to show us, at least in part here, three relationships that will be broken, but in Christ will be eternally good. In Christ, we have this perfect submission to the legislation of God. That's what Christ did. He came to be obedient to God, to live morally not autonomous from God, but to live in perfect obedience to God. So where God declares what is morally good and right, and we submit to this, and we enjoy the blessing of this rule, let's think about this. Through the work of Christ, 
our relationship with our spouse is being redeemed. Through the work of Christ, this relationship that is so difficult is being redeemed. And guys, if you miss or forget about that for a day, that's not good. Our relationship is being formed into its original intention. Where the husband sacrificially leads and where the woman willfully submits and follows. Not a dictatorial leadership and not a quiet doormat following but something that's intuitive, a well-oiled machine that is functioning for two tasks. A relationship that's functioning for two tasks. Through the work of Christ, our dominion over creation is being redeemed. So the first task is the mission of God, exercising dominion and bringing about redemption on this earth. You guys, do you want something that unifies your marriage, a practical implication of the text? People who want to be married in the future, you want something that will practically help get back to the intention and the way your marriage is supposed to look like? Have a unified task that looks more like the mission of God than having a nice house, having good finances, and, and whatever else we might desire. We have a task of the mission of God. That does involve exercising dominion over creation. But it more so involves exercising and doing things that have eternal value. And your house has not eternal value. The second thing is ultimately through the work of Christ our hearts are redeemed to love, trust, and and obey God. Love, trust, and obey God. Again, you want something that unifies your relationships. And guys, and this has implications even beyond marriage. You want something that unifies your relationship with your spouse, future spouse, other friends in the gospel. It's worship the same king. Grow in love and obedience and loyalty to him together. A place where our hearts willfully worship Him. The relationship with God. A worship and adoration of the one true King. A relationship that satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts. Why do we have so much marital problems? Because we look to our spouses and our wives to be our saviors. Instead of the only one who can be. So the text is asking us, some questions today. Do you love, trust, and obey your own decision in what is right and good? Do you? Do you find yourself day in, often trusting in your own decision of what is right and good? Do you love, trust, and obey your own logic and legislation? Do you worship your autonomy? Do you stake your joy and satisfaction in your ability to choose independent of God? Is that something that brings you joy? I can do this without God. If you answered yes to these questions, then look at your relationships, and I'm sure you'll see the effects 
in your marriage? Is it rocky? Is it lacking joy? Is it struggling in your dominion of work on this earth? Is it fruitless? Is it painful? Is it boring? Is it not satisfying in your relationship with God? Is it the last thing you put time into? Do you feel God doesn't hear you? You don't live in the boundless, infinite joy of the Father. That comes from being God's people, living under God's rule, in God's place. It's where we experience that freedom to be what God's called us to be, to live in that joy. It's not some mystical thing. It's all done through the work of Jesus Christ, which brings about this submission, willful submission to God's moral legislation. So the text would say to us, the gospel is our only hope. The shed blood of Jesus that covers our sins and sets us free to submit to God. That is our hope. It sets us free, guys. Here's the deal. The blood of Jesus that turns our heart from evil to desiring what is good sets us free to love, trust, and obey God. Through the blood of Jesus, we become God's people in God's place under God's rule. Not exercising moral autonomy, but instead submitting to God's moral legislation. Jesus, the Word, sets us free. And so my last question is this, are you placing your trust in yourself, in someone else, in something else, or Jesus? And Jesus exclusively. And if you're a Christian, this is a daily struggle. Might be an hourly struggle. And the key here, guys, is as we grow in faith, it's not that we sin less. I think we just realize more our sinfulness and more areas in our life where we are not subjecting it to the legislation of God and instead subjecting it to our own desires. So, guys, but we see here the grace of God, right? Like, we see here, like, our our desperation should drive us to dependence on God. Dependence in Jesus. Dependence in His work. You see, we are, the story did not stop, right? But let's place our trust in Christ. And Christ alone, tomorrow morning, when you're tempted to place your trust in something else, place it in Christ. Experience the joy that comes from placing your submission to Christ. Experience the blessing that comes from submitting to Christ. All this through the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have to do this by ourselves. If you find this hard, ask God. Right? Ask God, help me make this a reality in my life where I am willfully submissive to you. Where we can be God's people in God's place under God's rule. So, I want to pray for us and give us a time to reflect as we sing. Um, seriously, as we sing to God, you know, if you need to ignore the words and you need to just pray and bow your heads, let me encourage you to do that uh, as every week when we sing and reflect. So let's pray and, uh, and we'll worship together. Father, uh, Father God, I just pray that, um, that your word... Um, infiltrate our hearts. Father, I pray that we would see 
even the smallest places of our hearts or the things that we have hidden in the closets of our, the depths of our soul where we keep things hidden, secret idols that we place on the altar of our praise, in the altar of our submission. Father, that you would reveal those to us so that we might repent, so that sanctification might take place, so that we might experience the freedom that you've called us to experience. Father, um, I submit to you, even this time, Father, for your Holy Spirit to do his work that only he can do. And um, Father, just pray your blessing upon your people. Father, let us not leave in despair, but let us leave in joy. An excitedness because of the gospel. That the story did not stop there. But, the, but Father, the story continued, and it continues on even beyond this text. But very quickly, from the very beginning, we see your covenant of grace all over the place. And so, Father, let us see that. Let us see your grace. Let us live in that grace and your mercy. Let us experience freedom to be who you called us to be. And Father, we love you so much, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys stand with us as.